Welcome to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec. And I'm Kelly Moravec. So, welcome to episode three. Indeed. Indeed. Hey, so I created a little stink on the internet. I uh, posted on the Education Futures website the opinion piece entitled Why Pokemon Go and Minecraft in the Classroom Are Very Bad Ideas. Mm-hmm. And this came together after I gave a talk with a group in Mexico I was able to join virtually on the use of gaming in education. And the question was asked, so what about these tools? And I basically said, don't allow them in the classroom because these are these are tools that are really designed to allow free play and free expression. And the idea that I was really trying to convey is that the use of these tools in the classroom or for school experiences ruins the whole point of those games. Mm-hmm. And so I followed up with the blog post at Education Futures um, or as being a little provocative, I guess. In my post, I wrote that Minecraft and Pokemon Go are built around ideas of free play. That is, play without direction. And these are digital expressions of a natural human activity where invisible learning flourishes. Through play, children discover their interests and aptitudes. Play inspires curiosity to test boundaries and learn social rules and norms, together with the development of many soft skills. I wrote that these games do not belong in classrooms. They are instead frameworks that place trust in kids to develop their own skills and knowledge. They trust kids to learn what is important to them in their own communities and in ways that are meaningful to them. But actually, they don't because the whole purpose of playing a game is to play and have fun. I highly doubt that anyone developing a game such as Minecraft or Pokemon Go or any other game that's not marketed to schools is considering the kinds of learning that kids will do through playing the game. I also doubt that kids recognize any of the learning that they are doing while they're playing the game. That's the beauty of the game. That's why free play is so important. Exactly. And the learning is invisible. And the whole point of, uh, of a school-based educational experience, though, is to make learning visible. And I think that that's where we see this sort of disharmony that emerges when we try to use Minecraft or Pokemon Go in a learning environment. So I was asked uh, for this group in Mexico to connect gaming with, with a theory for invisible learning. And that is that we learn more, we do so invisibly, when we separate structures of control that restrict freedom and self-determination from learning experiences. I'm not sure if I believe that's what's happening when teachers are trying to incorporate things like Pokemon Go and Minecraft in the classroom. Can you elaborate? Well, I think what happens is that kids get excited about something on their own, like Minecraft or like Pokemon Go or like any other number of things that kids find out on their own and start doing independently and engaging with because they're fun or they're interesting. And teachers see that as a way to try to engage kids in learning in a similar fashion. I think the problem with incorporating something like Minecraft or Pokemon Go in a classroom is that teachers apply restrictions and structures around the games that take away the the freedom of play, which is what the kids enjoy in the first place. So inadvertently, they teachers are taking something that are engage that is engaging to kids and making it unengaging by placing parameters around it. And instead of making it something that is child-focused or learner-focused, it becomes teacher-focused because the teacher is directing what has to be done within the confines of the game. It seems to me we should consult with our in-house expert on Minecraft and Pokemon Go. I think that sounds like a good idea. 
It's my pleasure to introduce Hillel Kalorn, our 11-year-old son, who is a self-admitted Minecraft and Pokemon Go, among other games, uh, expert. Hi. So, Hillel, there might be some people listening to the podcast that don't know very much about Minecraft. Can you explain a little bit about what it is? A game about blocks. A game about Legos. So, you, you're you in the game and your goal is to cut, like, get blocks of, like, wood or something like that, and then build things with those other blocks. How do you learn? Sometimes when I usually learn something, I usually find it out. Instead of doing something like st- like some guy on YouTube is standing next to a board and saying, blah de blah de blah de blah blah How might Minecraft be used in schools for learning? Well, there are things called Minecraft mods where people... Put in, let's just say, Minecraft superheroes. So, like, you can be Ant-Man and turn down really small and run through things. Mm-hmm. And so you can... That's technically, like, your own game. There are some things that show me, like, oh, yeah, I build your own Minecraft mod. So if I built my own Minecraft mod then put it into Minecraft, I can play Minecraft with my mod. So I can make my own custom adventure with that. Mm-hmm. Which would be pretty interesting because if I use little NPCs like a cow or a pig that talks to you that keeps the adventure going. So you would be interested in doing something like that but around an idea that your teacher had so if maybe you're... Oh no. No. No I wouldn't do that at all. Why? Because if they get because teachers usually give like you know set instructions about what you're supposed to do so if I don't have a choice of what I'm supposed to do like I'm supposed to build a old timey ship mod that makes it so that Columbus sails across a huge ocean, then I wouldn't really have a choice of what I'm supposed to do. I can't make my own special mod. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't like that? No, I would not like that at all. But I would like to build my own mod without any instructions. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today, Hillel. Thank you very much. We got a note on Twitter from Garrett Zimmer in Toronto, who is really passionate about this topic. Now, Garrett runs a Minecraft and education startup called MindGage. It's in Toronto and they're working to create learning adventures using Minecraft. I was really curious about it, so I interviewed him on Skype. I'll start by saying again, I absolutely loved your article. Well, thanks so much. I I thought it was brilliantly done. Uh, It falls along all the major research into game-based learning uh, and especially creating affordances for play. Um, you haven't made a convert of me. I still believe in game-based learning, but I think you raised some very, very valid points that I've been stating to teachers for the last year uh, in regards to implementation of it. Yeah, so I'm really glad to have the, the chance to talk with you about this. Cool. I'm glad, too. It's, um, you know, it's meant to be a little bit provocative to see... Yep. Uh, what we can get out of it, what sort of conversations would, would come out of it. And the tough thing about gaming is that schools are all about power and way too much about power until we address yep. that. It's uh, it's quite a, you know, it's quite an obstacle. I agree. There, there are two sort of separate ends of the spectrum when it comes to uh, creating learning environments. You have, again, and I, I'll go directly back to uh, Cristobal. Um, he put out a post on Twitter and and I found him through you. Uh, I guess you guys work closely together or you retweeted some of his stuff, but Cristobal Cobo, uh, put out a 
just a, a matrix of pedagogy versus andragogy versus hiragogy. And I thought it was so relevant to what we're talking about in terms of game-based learning, where right now we are stuck in that 200-year-old mentality of pedagogy. It's the control the classroom, teacher-led approach uh, versus, you know, students being passionate about learning. And it, it's sad because, you know, our, our ultimate desire is to have students who are passionate and driven to learn and to continue to learn. But we don't teach in that way. <laughs> uh, challenging, challenging. But I think, you know, I, I love the fact that you were provocative in in your article because it, it really is. It's those key things that teachers need to know when you're implementing game based learning into the classroom. The biggest mistake you can make is to destroy their game for them or to turn it into basically what I call a glorified worksheet, right? Yeah. Or, or, you know, in Minecraft's case, and I've coined this term many times, uh, virtual diorama. <laughs> Just... like, like, you're not doing anything different. You're not, <laughs> that's it. So you're, you're basically doing the same thing as you've done for years and years. And yes, that's a comfort zone, but kids are quickly going to find the novelty wearing off. Exactly. Too often we went up using technology to do the same old stuff. That's it. That's it. So my my background and my developments and, and how I work with educators is always around the very game based side of things. I'm a gamer by background. Uh, it's in my blood. It's been a passion of mine since I, I think I got my first Commodore 64. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I see things a little bit differently, especially being a professional gamer. Uh, so I came from the last couple of years, well, about two years ago, I stopped doing it, but I was a professional YouTuber. Uh, and that's what I did for a living is I oh, played cool. games. Uh, and, you know, I've got a following of about, I don't know, 13,000 uh, subscribers. And, you know, I played games with Stampy Long Nose and, uh, you know, Gizzy Gaza and Netty Plays and some oh, of the big sure. names out there. Um, and, you know, I really found that it gave me a different insight into how to engage with kids. And so I try to bring and share that insight and that approach of we have to make it engaging, we have to keep it synchronized to mm -hmm. their vision of what the game is. And my theories are that we can actually do that if we implement it correctly, if we put adventures and narratives and, and generate quests, and there's schools like Quest New York, uh, Quest NYC, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, who are doing it very, very well, not necessarily in a digitized way, but doing it so well and getting tremendously positive results because they're turning learning into an adventure. And when we can do that, then we have we're meeting we're actually meeting kids where they are, as opposed to just uh, <laughs> bringing the rhetoric of meeting kids where they are. I really like what he said about meeting kids where they are. Um, that's something that's important to me. That's something that I believe in as well. But I'm still not quite sure how he's looking at incorporating Minecraft into a classroom in a way that not only meets kids where they are, but allows them to still be the leader of their own learning as opposed to just doing the learning that he as the developer of this program or teachers as the developer of the standards or targets are wanting them to learn. Well, that's a good question. Let's take a look at what a Minecraft adventure looks like in education. In the work that you do then, what is a Minecraft educational adventure? So my company, MindGage, we, we started out originally um, just looking to build these massive games. 
uh, or massive game worlds, these, these massive learning worlds where teachers could download the world and have their children actually walk through it. I'll show you an example if I can share my screen with you. Uh, there we go. Can you see this? I can. So this is Elizabethan London, circa 1600. And we built this world uh, in Minecraft. And this is literally a recreation. And you're looking at uh, a player would stand maybe two of these blocks tall. Uh, so very, 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 you know, big, large world, very immersive. And originally we were just going to produce worlds like this and, and give them to teachers to use. And mm -hmm. then we started looking at it and I started doing my research into GBL and I said, it's not good enough because, you know, teachers are going to use it and kids are going to go through and it's, it's just an art piece, right? Yes. Will it drive some conversation around the students? Certainly. Will it be effective for students learning? Not necessarily. So then we actually started developing uh, non-player characters within this world, okay. tied it to a, an adventure storyline, uh, and based it around core uh, grade two math curriculum. And so the objective is you, you enter into the world, and it's like playing an adventure game. So you go and you meet a particular character, and he says, look, you know, uh, I'm, I'm on the search for a treasure, and I need to find this treasure. And in order to find this treasure, you know, I need your help. And so you immediately invest the student in this greater cause right. uh, towards learning. So it, it, again, masks the learning that they're supposed to be taking place, which basically alleviates the typical disconnect that students have when getting into the classroom where it's teacher says to do this, ergo, I have to do this. Right. So the and learning assignment becomes more invisible. The learning assignments become very invisible. And as players progress through they recognize quickly that they need to gather supplies and materials and, and equip themselves in order to uh, finalize the adventure and defeat the final bosses or, or what have you. And in order to get those pieces of equipment or materials or food even to survive, they have to do good deeds and work for citizens around this entire London area. And those good works that they have to do, for example, there's one over here on the London Bridge where they have to actually help transfer uh, their knowledge of numeracy, of, of numbers written versus numerical, and help a candle maker to redesign his signs so that everybody in London can understand it. So some of the challenges include, you know, and, and this is very, very basic stuff, but some of the challenges, for example, include, look, you know, I'm, I'm selling these signs, but I'm not getting the customers at the low end who, who can't read. So can you convert these written numbers into numerical numbers? And we track that. And one of the, the goals of our platform is to make sure that all of the information that happens, all of the activity that happens is not pushed in front of the student saying, you did this, 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 good job, uh, or a teacher saying, you got this correct, this correct, this correct. But it's all so that we don't break the immersion of the adventure. We pull all that onto the back end and give the student a chance to look at it after they've gone through that portion of the adventure. And then we also store that information for parents and teachers so that it's no longer a teacher standing over a child saying, you know, you've, you've done that wrong. It's now the child going through it and practicing and feeling like they're still a part of the adventure. And then on the back end, the teacher gets a chance to really do the assessment and say, okay, this is where it looks like they're having trouble. Let's focus in on this area of need. And so it really amplifies the invisibility of the learning in the interim stage of gaming so that it really does uh, 
I guess the, the key is we don't want to disconnect students out of an immersive environment because that's where they get into the state of flow. And any break in that state of flow will have ramifications towards their retention and towards their level of enjoyment and engagement. So that's basically what a learning adventure to me looks like. Well, to me, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, it sounds like that we're, we've grown up in the same generation. You talk about Commodore 64. I started oh. with an Apple IIe. Uh, okay. And when I was a kid, we had a, a company down the street that produced a game called uh, Oregon Trail. Yep. You may have heard so of it. you were down the street from Oregon Trail? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, made in Minneapolis. So yeah. um, I played that game all growing up, man. Yeah. Absolutely. And everybody did. And that was really the first model, you know, the first major educational game, really. And the approach to it was really different. I mean, people today, I think we, we look back at Oregon Trail and think, gosh, you know, that's the game that started it all. But, but really, Oregon Trail, you know, we played in computer labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people were able to get home, but largely played in computer labs. And it was when you had a substitute teacher or a teacher that just didn't know what else to do. So, hey, go play Oregon Trail. They had no idea uh, what it was really or, or had assignments to attach to it. And so it seems to me that the our view of educational games has changed a bit rather than being this sort of thing that, you know, you stuff kids into a lab and, you know, let the game babysit them um, into something where, OK, well, grab your assignment sheet and, uh, you know, as you go play Pokemon Go, make sure you're meeting these 13 criteria, take notes and report back. And, oh, yeah, it's gonna be fun. It's changed so much. Yeah. And, and you you hit the point right there is, you know, we we've almost come full circle, but, you know, the circle has changed. Right. Like we originally Oregon Trail was not intended to be an educational game. It just it really fit that niche. And then we started seeing offshoots of educational games coming out, like where in the world is Carmen San Diego? And the saddest thing in the world then happened where, you know, educational games just didn't get traction. Uh, and I think it's it's a part and parcel of we just weren't ready. Uh, we were still very much stuck in that uh, pedagogy stage, the very lecture based approach. Uh, now, I think it's just a perfect time to roll that through in a in a comeback, you know. But luckily, we've learned a lot more since then. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense, at least from a you know scientific and a research standpoint. And I'll I'll credit Jane McGonigal and, you know, Paul, Paul G and, you know, various others for their groundbreaking work in pushing games and playful learning uh, to the forefront. So let's pause here for a moment. Kelly, did you play Oregon Trail? I did. In fifth grade, we played Oregon Trail. Well, tell me about it. Um, We all filed into the computer lab and we had our gigantic five inch floppy disks or six inch floppy disks five and a quarter inch five and a quarter inch floppy disks and um you know put our oregon trail into the normal computers and sat and independently played and and i really enjoyed it i think most of my classmates probably enjoyed it too we didn't get to go to the computer lab very often and so it was it was sort of a treat to be able to go in there i can't say now as an adult what I learned necessarily about the Oregon Trail based on playing that game, but I do recall enjoying it. Okay, well, let's continue. Well, you seem to have tapped into, you know, some of the disconnects I think that we have with conventional wisdom and the potentials with games. Mm. Um, is there any part of, or additional parts of our conventional wisdom about games and education that we just get plain wrong? 
Well, I mean, I mean, conventional wisdom is such a broad term, so I'm not sure, you know, we'd have to be discussing something a little bit more specific. I think there's there's so many conventional wisdoms. The easiest one to pick would be games rot your brain. And that's been scientifically proven to be incorrect. Uh, In fact, it's been scientifically and neuroscience proven that, you know, games have an opportunity to, you know, actually empower the mind and empower the focus, empower the vision. Uh, And I'm talking vision as in, you know, the the ocular receptors that games have the ability to do this. Um, So there's, there's so many things. I think from an education standpoint, though, one of the biggest fears, failures and ideas is that we can take. And and this is one that I particularly have an issue with, is that we can take game elements and separate them from a game and throw them into a classroom and get this magical uh, recipe for success. And that's in the whole paradigm of uh, gamification. And as much as I see gamification has a place in education, I think it's just a buzz. It's a it's a pop culture thing. Um, And I've seen it because I'm a business guy with a business background, and I've done all the research into gamification, not all the research, don't get me wrong, uh, but a lot of research into gamification in the corporate environment. And it's very interesting because, you know, the niche areas where it's finding the most success are in customer retention. And it's a whole different ball of wax, customer retention and loyalty programs than trying to teach kids a passion for learning. For sure. So I believe that once we start, you know, transitioning from this gamification approach where we're just taking badges and points and slapping them on things and hoping to get a good reaction from students, which is, again, demotivating after a period of time. You know, kids are smart. They see through it. Um, Then we get to a stage where we're saying, okay, how do we actually utilize games that are popular for kids that are engaging for them and use them in an appropriate way and be able to make those connections? Um, and, and there's quite a few people that I have these conversations with and they, they all agree that the, it's the, the affordance of play that really keeps kids engaged. And it's the opportunity to, you know, be immersed in that experience uh, without feeling like it's just being scapegoated into the class. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, to me, I, mean, I think it makes some pretty good sense. And what about you? I, what are your- sorry. I was going to say, what are your thoughts on on some of the big things that we may get wrong in education and games? The, the thing for me is that we seem to have really, for mainstream education, we've bought into one model, uh, one, one pedagogy. It's a it's a top down system yeah. uh, that's teacher student directed or curriculum teacher student directed or government policy curriculum teacher student directed. And so there isn't really any any space for maneuverability. We don't have the options there to go out and actually go play. Uh, yeah. We can create things. We can pretend it's play. And it's really not play. And uh, play is, it is the most natural form of human learning, I believe. It's it, not just humans. And animals, yeah. Animals as well. Yeah, it's it's a natural form of learning. And it is one of the most effective forms as well. And uh, when kids play, they're learning all the time. In fact, the only thing that I would argue that kids do is they learn. Uh, but we've, you know, within schools, we've been we've really 
gotten this top-down paradigm, and I think a lot of it has to do with accountability, which is a good which is a good question, right? How do we know that kids are learning, right? Yes, it's it's a fair question, um, but we've become I think too obsessed with it, and so we really get into the measurement, we really get into control, and we unfortunately cannot measure what's inside of a person's head, um, but we like to think that we can do so. Um, I think that it takes a lot of play out of learning. Um, a lot of fun gets missed out or opportunities for for kids to find their own passions, to seek out adventures, uh, to seek out new experiences. And I think that's a, that's an area where we, where we see a huge disconnect. And I think and I, that really until we really address this power issue and this sort of this directionality that going from the top down into something that's more like the student out... The, the the use of games in the classroom is really going to be stunted. Well, there's there's a couple of arguments that I'll make towards that. Number one, I think we're we're on the cusp of this beautiful evolution, um, and I'm seeing it from one perspective because I associate with and I talk with and I integrate with and I'm in Twitter chats all over the place with these game based learning educators around the world the ones who are trying these new things and even the administrators and the superintendents like New Jersey school board, uh, West Plainsboro, fantastic school board. And, and I've had the privilege and the pleasure of speaking with a number of their superintendents and, and leaders and supervisors. And they're all on the same page. They're concerned now and looking to push the whole child learning experience, as opposed to just the let's focus just on curriculum and getting it done and getting the standardized testing. So I think there's a lot of the community right now who are starting to lean towards uh, what we need to be in terms of the evolution of our classrooms and being able to get to that stage. We're not quite there yet on a holistic scale, but we're coming there. And the secondary thing, though, argument that I actually have is I think it's it's dangerous to talk about the ideal world or to imply that the ideal world is one where kids have this tremendous amount of freedom and can go and make their own choices and do that. And while I do agree, you know, every child needs a level of freedom and a level of trust. And I think you coined it very well in your article that a lot of it is trust. And these games are developed as trust based games, trust the child to go and create what they want. That's all well and good. But we're always going to need that that metric to show. And that's just, I, I think, part of how we improve. Uh, we don't know if we're improving if we can't see the scoring on that. And it, the same thing goes with business and uh, and hand in hand with uh, sociology and, and student learning. So I think what we have to do is we have to find a balanced way of saying what is our ideal? Because I don't think our ideal should be no marks ever. And there's lots of professors out there who speak about this, uh, you know, uh, no scoring in the classroom, no testing, no nothing. And I think that's a little bit on the short sighted side. And I'm not an expert in it, but this is just coming from my gut feeling mm -hmm. uh, and my background in business, especially where, you know, business is very contingent on knowing numbers and knowing results and looking how to increase efficiencies. Um, and I think we do need some of that within the classroom, but we have to find a way to get that without it infringing on a student's ability to have fun. 
And that's where I think, you know, I was giving you the example of what we were trying to create with MindGage. And that is this idea where the student plays and has fun and is looked at from a distance. And you're a researcher, so you understand research concepts. And, you know, if, if you're doing a study, the best studies are the blind studies. You know, when when Jane Goodall was in the jungle with the uh, with the apes, you know, her goal was to not disrupt the environment around her because that's the only way that she was going to get the true knowledge and the true metrics of what was happening there. And I think we need to try and figure out how do we get to that approach with children to let them do what they naturally do and be able to still assess what they're doing and how they're learning. And the picture perfect model of that right now is games. If you look at, you know, a, a standard game like World of Warcraft, the amount of data points that you can incorporate into that game and track within that game are so significant. You can literally have, there are psychologists out there who have literally researched user data upon user data, and, you know, they can come up with a, a profile of that particular player. And so I think if we can kind of get to that stage and games really help with that, uh, but games really need to show that, give that information and allow that data to be visible, obviously within the confines of privacy, but that's where teachers can really start to garner knowledge about how does my child learn? Not just what they're learning, but how are they learning it? Are they, uh, well, one of the things that we incorporated in our world uh, or attempted to, and, and we're still in the process of developing it, but as we want, you know, the main quest to be going through the grade two math curriculum, that's great. But we also allowed opportunities and put in various other different points of interest, such as archaeology, where you could go and you could dig down in the northern uh, epicenter of London and find one of the old Roman forts. And you can pick that up as a quest. You can go and you can start fishing. So if you got bored of doing mathematics for a period of time and didn't want to continue the main quest for a moment and wanted to do side quests, you have that opportunity. And if you started seeing that there are children who you know, want to go and do the archaeology quest and they completed that within a matter of minutes or, or a matter of, you know, an hour or so and then got back on. That's valuable information there. Well, I and I that. think that's where the power that games come in is we have access to the visibility because they're digital um, or at least with digital games, not not so much with hide and go seek. But well, I like that a lot. Um, I thought it was really interesting that you brought up big data and analytics um, yep. into that. And that's going to be a huge education uh, issue as uh, as we start, you know, moving forward and yeah. you know, big data starts to move in. And, you know, we're probably moments away from a WikiLeaks type uh, exposure of, you know, all your kids test scores. And, you know, then they maybe you see a, an employer in the future that's like, oh, I don't know, your fifth grade test score and math wasn't very good. I don't think we want to hire you. Um, but gaming, using that for for gaming, though, uh, through gaming, using that for assessment on different variables is a very interesting idea. Are you aware of anybody that's uh, has been working on that? No, I'm not. To be perfectly honest, I'm not. I, I, I know there's a number of companies like BrainPop and Filament Games who are, you know, working very deeply. And I'm I'm nascent. I'm new in the game-based learning environment from a company perspective. At least, you know, my company is. You know, I assume that when you're in that environment, you really do have to track certain amounts of data. 
but I'm not sure if it's gone to the state that I'm recommending, if it's gone to the level that I'm recommending where you're tracking as much data as you can. And I think, you know, games in general have a tendency not to do that because there's there's still a lot of cost on the front end uh, to develop a game, you know, artistic resources and writing resources and scripting resources and all of that, that, you know, it just adds more to the cost when you're trying to track every single data point. But I think data analytics are embedded in a lot of those cultures. If you look at Glass Labs games, they have a beautiful back end uh, for data analytics and tracking. And in fact, they do a lot of work in actually designing how those metrics work on the back end. So actually, that is an example of one that is doing it, I should say, in a very powerful way. Uh, and that would be Glass Labs games. Let's pause here. I think this is where it connects with what I wrote on the Post and Education Futures website on building room for visible learning on games. Kelly, what does a student out approach to learning look like? I think a student out approach to learning is dependent on trusting students to identify an area of curiosity and then finding and helping them find and collaborating with them on finding resources and materials to use to be able to learn a little bit more about whatever it is that they're interested in. That can be done through gaming, that could be done through reading, that could be done through uh, putting someone in touch with someone from the community, uh, job shadowing, um, opportunity shadowing, it could be done through a whole variety of means. You know, I think there are many kids who enjoy the Pokemon Go game, but Hillel doesn't. Hillel is an expert on Pokemon. Um, he's been an expert since the time he was really little because he is very interested in Pokemon. He has read every book. He has watched all of the TV shows. He's watched all of the movies. He's played all of the video games. And he doesn't care for Pokemon Go because it doesn't follow the premise of Pokemon. And, and we can maybe save that for a different podcast, a different interview with him. But he has shared with me multiple times very specific reasons why he doesn't like it because it doesn't fit with what he knows about Pokemon. And I think that him being excited about, in this case, Pokemon, led him to do a lot of learning that I had no idea he had done. And the only reason I know about it now is because Pokemon Go is a big craze right now. If we were to be able to turn him on to some other topic within the school structure that would meet standards that have been specified by the state, uh, that he would be able to take those tools that he used for exploration and be able to learn just as much, if not more, about that topic and learn other kinds of skills like problem identification and problem solving and critical thinking and reading skills and math skills as he's exploring this topic on his own. So I think that when we're talking about learner out, it starts with trusting kids to be able to identify something of interest and then as a teacher facilitating the learning of that interest through whatever resources we can come across uh, to help them with that venture. So how can teachers get started today? How can they bring more meaningful gaming into their classrooms? You know, really, you have to play the game. I say this to everybody. You know, a lot of teachers think that it's going to be, you know, this thing that and this is a big topic in Minecraft is um, you don't have to be an expert 
as a teacher to be able to use this. And that is absolutely true. You can rely on your students as the experts. And that is absolutely true. But I think, you know, the biggest thing is you really do have to play the game in order to understand it. It's very similar to picking up an Excel spreadsheet and never having touched Excel and then trying to teach with it. It's just it's not going to be done. You have to understand the basics and you have to have a feeling. The other side of it is in gaming. Gamers stick together and we're a culture and we're not a pulp culture. We're here to stay. And as gamers, if you don't speak our language, at least to some degree, you're immediately positioning yourself with this same disconnect that we have, this authority control issue that we have in past years in the classroom. And so you're setting yourself up already as I am the teacher. Where everybody has been successful is, you know, be a part of the game. So if you're going to run a Minecraft game in your classroom or a Pokemon Go game in your classroom and you're going to utilize it, Play it with the students. Make it an exploration experience with everybody, yourself included. And then you build your knowledge and you grow. So that's the best advice I have for teachers to, to think about getting started in games is, you know, go in and start playing a few games. You don't have to be a gamer to the point of playing for 12 hours a day uh, or 10 hours or eight hours or even two hours. But go in, understand what makes the game tick, understand especially, and I focus a lot on Bartle's psychology of gamers, understand what types of gamers you have. And when you understand, you know, the different types of gamers, then you start to see why they engage in it. And you can develop your lessons and utilize that game in a way that meets them truly and in an authentic way where they are without infringing on their game. Because that's the reality is it's their game. And if you change it, if you tweak it, if you mess it up, if you uh, use it as a scapegoat, you're just opening the door for a big disconnect. And then you get back to students who are just playing the classroom. Great. Are there any additional resources that you would suggest uh, for for teachers that are working on, on figuring out the space or improving their approaches to this? I, I would very much recommend resources in terms of your fellow teachers. Uh, there's lots of research out there. You can look at the research by Paul G. You can look at the research by Jane McGonigal. I'm sure you have some research on it, John, as well. Um, but there's no substitute for talking with the teachers who are doing it and experimenting with it and using it in the classroom. And I've found personally the best place to find that is on Twitter and having those and opening up those discussions and talking with those people. And in particular, you know, there's groups like ours, which is Minecraft Ed, which is hosted every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Uh, using the hashtag Minecraft Edu. Uh, and we meet in a Twitter chat. And then there's also Games for Ed Chat, uh, which is primarily focused on a broader scale of games, not just Minecraft and utilizing game-based learning in the classroom. And that happens on Thursday nights at, uh, I believe it's 8 p.m. But I would go to Twitter. I would make those connections, talk with the teachers. I mean, we're in a global education world now. Um, you know, the, the, the things, the same challenges that we're having here in North America are the same challenges that they're having in South Africa. They're the same challenges they're having in China, in Japan, in various other places in the world. And so Twitter gives you that global atmosphere to really find teachers who are like-minded and explore together. And that's, you know, it's a big part of your professional growth. Well, thank you very much on that.
thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me. Kelly, what are your final thoughts on this? Is there any room for Pokemon Go or Minecraft in the classroom? You know, I think there's room for just about anything in a classroom. I really liked when Garrett was talking about the Minecraft adventure, the Elizabethan London adventure, and how he worked really hard with the second grade math curriculum um, to incorporate those skills and strategies within this kind of adventure-based game. I think that would be really motivating and really engaging for the kinds of kids that want to play Minecraft, um, like the adventure sort of of game, um, and they could, you know, learn those math skills through that that gaming platform. But I also think that there are kids who would not be motivated or engaged by playing Minecraft in that way that wouldn't necessarily learn the math skills through that adventure sort of game because that's not something they'd be interested in. So I think while absolutely a Minecraft adventure game like that has a place in in the classroom, there need to be other opportunities, other ways, other larger ways than just a standards-based curriculum for helping kids who wouldn't be motivated by that sort of activity to still be able to learn uh, to the same extent, to the same degree as other kids that would want to play that game. I think the biggest issue for me is marching your class down the hall to play Oregon Trail or to play Elizabethan London Adventure on Minecraft um, and assuming that because it's motivating and engaging for a handful of kids or even a majority of kids that it might be motivating and engaging for everyone because there isn't such a thing. So when we go back to this idea of talking about learner out or student out, we really need to think about how we're going to incorporate activities for students to learn the things that they need to know and be able to do by the time they graduate for each student instead of looking at it as all students. And that wraps up this episode of the Education Futures podcast. We'd really love to have your voice in this conversation. Email us your thoughts. We're giving away copies of Dr. Richard Cash's Advancing Differentiation, Thinking and Learning for the 21st Century to our first two listeners that provide feedback. You can email john at john at educationfutures.com or me at kelly at educationfutures.com. Remember to join us the first Saturday of every month for our virtual book club discussion taking place on both Twitter and Facebook. To participate on Twitter, use hashtag EFreads at 10 o'clock a.m., Central Time, or find me, Kelly, on Facebook and follow me, or find Education Futures on Facebook and follow that for a video recording that you can participate in live. Our next book club will be October 1st, and we've been reading Posse Salberg's Finnish Lessons 2.0. The one after that will be November 5th with Dr. Richard Cash's Self-Regulation in the Classroom, and on December 3rd, we're reading Peter Gray's Free to Learn. And again, the hashtag to join in on Twitter is EFreads. Again, thank you for joining the Education Futures podcast. I'm John Moravec. And I'm Kelly Moravec. 